Uh, we had a call to worship this morning, and I, I didn't get it to Kat in time, uh, who is the incredible singer over. Can we give it up for Kat? And so um, I said, hey, Kat, why don't you, I feel like a, a good setup, why don't we just read Psalm 63 together? And I said, stop at verse 8, and then, you know, if you want to pray, you can pray, and then we'll, we'll begin. She heard clearly start at verse 8. This is my fault for doing this last second. It has nothing to do with Kat. I'm telling you this because if you walked in at the beginning of the service, you uh, heard what is known as like an imprecatory, I always say the word wrong, an imprecatory psalm um, where you walked in and you were like, cool, this church is strange. Some of those people may have already walked out um, where it was like, may my enemies become food for jackals, I believe is one of the lines there. By the way, can everyone in the back hear me Okay with all the fans and everything. I don't want to turn the fans off. So just lie, lie to me. Um, if you're new to the scriptures, I was like, man, this could be a little teaching moment. Like why on earth we sing of like God's mercy and love and joy. And then you have in the Bible, you have, you have may my enemies become food for jackals. This apparently is the same God who shows up as Jesus and says, love your enemies. So is this why people don't trust the Bible? You've got food for jackals for some enemies and then love other enemies. It also reinforces this, um, this really unhelpful uh, idea that the Old Testament is when God's grumpy and mean and the New Testament is he like kind of cheers up. It's like he didn't have his coffee. It was like 6 a.m. before coffee and then Jesus comes, he has coffee and everything's pretty cool. We laugh, but a lot of people treat the scriptures like that. And I will spare you going into a very long sermon about that. But what I will say is what, uh, the reason why Jesus and really any good Jewish uh, rabbi, someone who's trying to be faithful to the way of God, would read a psalm like that with that kind of language in it uh, and if you've gone through the Psalms, maybe you've come across Psalms that are like, this doesn't seem right. Um, what, what they're being is, is honest. And so they capture like the full range of human emotion. It's why they turn into prayers because um, you might feel holier than thou at the moment. Like you've never thought about having your enemies be fed to jackals. But you have thought about maybe more modern equivalents of that, like, man, I would just love for that person to be hit by a car right now. And maybe no one's had that thought. Maybe that's just me. But there's an honesty in them. So in a funny way, I was thinking, wow, we talk about a sanctuary. We want this to be a safe place and a sacred place, an honest place for you to engage God, to have the same doubts that are expressed in the scriptures the same questions and the same wrestling. And, and then recognizing that this is a place on Sunday where many of us who are passionate followers of Jesus who are coming in just for like encouragement and a rally for a new week. Like wherever you're coming in, we want it to be a place where we can be real about what's gone on and be honest before God and say, regardless of how I'm feeling, there's something true about the universe and about who I am. So I say all of that and that, that was sort of a fun little moment. Because it's like, for, for at least for those of you who came in having a hard week. Maybe for some of you, uh, there's some social workers in the room. 
you, you've approached burnout. Maybe some of you, there's that person in your home group who's really, really exhausting and tiring. And maybe for some of you, there's folks that are just, you've been trying to practice more, a greater radical hospitality and that is like bumped up against your own, uh, your own lines of, of boundaries and what your capacity is for. And you heard something like, may my enemies, welcome church, may my enemies become food for jackals. And you just thought, wow, this place is real. That's the hope in Psalms like that, is that it actually invokes, like, like brings us in our whole selves, like front and center before God. That we would then go, okay, what am I really dealing with? I, I, I often repeat this phrase, this isn't unique to me, but we don't come to church, like, like once we get good, we don't come to like church or a gathering like this. Right? We, we, we come here in order to be sanctified, in order to be made good and beautiful and true. We come honest and we want to come raw. And so I, I thought, too, that would be a good intro even to my sermon in a funny roundabout way, even though it has literally nothing to do with that. Is that this morning, maybe for you, uh, you have a tendency to come to then hearing like a teaching or someone open the scriptures or come to some songs and you feel like you sort of have to put on some sort of like Outfit. It's like putting on an outfit or a show or there's like a distance and oh, I can't be real about that. The reason why sometimes I'm as casual with my language or even my dress, I know it bothers some people. This is definitely not the church for you. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I do that like in part is that we, we just want to be honest. There's nothing magical that happens when you come through these doors, Right? It's just a building. Can we be really clear? This is just a building. In fact, we're all noticing how impractical and, and poor of a building this is in this day and age, right? As you're sweating there. The church is a people, and so we come into the life of the community, and we come as we are because Jesus invited people to come as they are with all their questions and doubts and struggles and anxieties and frustrations. And so I want to encourage you as I launch into a few ideas today and as we step into this new series and look at the life of Jesus and ask what does it mean to be followers of Jesus that you would, you would bring your whole self to this in whatever way that might look like. I should have done that one second because the first one is just a random announcement. Next Sunday night, it's July 8th at St. Martin's Episcopal Church which is over on the east side, we're having heart. Now, it's not a heart just for the East Side team. It's just the East Side team is helping to put that on. And the, we do these prayer, and praise, prayer, praise, and worship gatherings where we're seeking God for renewal, for revival in our city. Uh, and we're going to uh, do it from 4.30 to 6 and then have a meal right after. So it's a time of prayer and worship, a healing service. So everybody, we're inviting all the churches. So our church, we're inviting Sanctuary North will be there. And we'll be joining up with the East Side in part because some of the things we'll be praying for and leaning into is for this new congregation that's starting on the East Side in the fall, which is really exciting. Yay. Cool. We're really excited about the, the, what's kind of coming next for that community. So all that, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, it's difficult for us to be... Um, honest with others, never mind honest with ourselves. Um, so I, I pray, Lord, that you, with the 
simple words that have been prepared for this morning as we launch into this new series about uh, what it looks like to grow as a family, as community, Christian community juxtaposed with other sorts of communities. I pray that you do something, even as it's hot, even as we're looking forward to ice cream, as we're, we're, uh, we're feeling a bit fatigued. I pray you give us expectant hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to say a word with me here. Can you say all alone? All alone. All alone. This is the, uh, the, the term one another. Depending on how you count, 42, 49, 52, one another's in all of the scripture. Um, one count has it up to about 100 times if you count the times they're repeated in 94 verses. 47 of these you should love one another, serve one another, bless one another, come from Jesus. And Paul gives us about 60% of them. And interesting to note, four of the one another's are all about extending the holy kiss to one another, which is a thing that we don't do as much anymore, um, unless you're a bit of a creeper or sitting next to your spouse. Never mind. I'm trying. One third of them have to do with unity. So verses like this, be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one, among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. That's metaphorical, by the way. I don't know if there was a biting problem in the early church. About a third of them have to do with love. Love one another comes up again and again and again and again. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Be devoted to one another in love, it says in Romans 12. About 15% stress humility. Wash one another's feet, give preference to one another and honor. We're going to begin to set that up. And then there's some extra ones, bonus rounds. Uh, bear one another's burdens, speak truth to one another, don't lie to one another, comfort one another, encourage and build up one another. The reason why we have things like home groups, these little mini like house churches, the reason why we reinforce as much as we can that this is important space, but not like the culmination of the church, is because in part, it's really hard to practice those kinds of one another's in a room where you're all facing forward, in a room with this many people in it. And so what we wanted to do this summer was to take six weeks and to look at some of these big groupings and ask the question as we get ready, summer is sort of a time where we're like, all right, where our souls are hopefully being refreshed in the life of the church. There's a bit of like exhale for many of us, I know not all of us during the summer. That we'd have time, we have a little more bandwidth often to look around and, and have barbecues and to hang out with one another, be with one another that we would ask some fundamental questions about what is the difference between a Christian community and everybody else? Because we actually believe that to be in a Christian community, people who are following Jesus together, we, we are often not, not, it's not a gauge of like better or worse, it's just very different. We have the same propensities often towards hypocrisy and brokenness and evil. 
But there's a different way in which we engage with all of that. And so we wanted to look at that. And I want to go about that in kind of a funny way. And hopefully you'll follow me this morning. Mark 10, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones, turn with me to Mark 10. The disciples are 1032. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished at all that it was going on while some were afraid. Now, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem, followed by the 12 disciples, possibly more. And Jesus knew that this would be the last time that he would go to Jerusalem because once he was there, he would never leave. He knew he was going to be arrested and eventually crucified. So he decides to get his, uh, his crew up to speed on what's going on. Up until this point, they've been very, very popular as they enter the city. Crowds are there. People want to be close to him. Though we read about all the, like, the, the blowback, all the shade that's being thrown at Jesus if you're familiar with the scriptures at all from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, it's important to know, and there's tons of data points throughout the scripture, that a lot of people are coming to hear him. And like traveling rabbis with a new yoke, that would be a rabbi's teaching. They have a new yoke, which is right interesting when you hear Jesus say, my yoke is easy. He's, he's, he's talking about his, his teaching, the way he understands Torah. My burden is light. Different sermon. People are, are drawn to this light burden and easy yoke. They're, they're being pulled in. People are following him. And then the disciples who are closest to him, his entourage, there's a whole lot of people, especially the poor and the hurting, are drawn to them. If you couldn't get close to Jesus, the next best thing was to be close to somebody who was close to Jesus. So all the disciples, a little bit like rock stars at this particular juncture in their ministry, incredibly popular. And so as they're moving to Jerusalem, Jesus knows that he needs to give them a bit of a dose of reality. So as they're walking, takes the 12, we read this. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He's referring to himself. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So he's doing like a little Al Gore thing. For those of you who remember that, he's like speaking in the third person. Three people. You know what? Actually, I can't even hear if people are laughing or not or engaging or not because of the fans. So this is great. I'm just going to keep going and just assume everyone thinks everything I say is brilliant and hilarious. <laughs> right after, they go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be tried. Eventually, I'm going to be put to death. He says this in incredibly graphic terms. He gives them a list of what to expect. And then right after in the text, if you're following along, it says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. James and John walk up to Jesus. They kind of push beside him so the others can't hear. And they say, Jesus, listen. 
It's, it's almost like saying, like, sorry about being the whole, like, spit on, mocked, and crucified and all that. Yeah, yeah, but hey, hey, hey. When you become king, and then they launch into this whole conversation. It's like they haven't actually listened. Sorry you're going to get beaten everything. That's going to be tough, I'm sure. But, uh, hey, when you become king and you're finally on the throne, we want to know, could we sit on your left and your right? We'd like to know if we could be in positions of power. This is the most insensitive passage in the whole Bible. So mean. They're just not paying attention. The other apostles then see that James and John are kind of having this private conversation, if you keep following along, with Jesus, and they get, quote, indignant. They realize that James and John are asking for special entitlement, special position, and they're like, ah, wait a minute. We've been here just as long as you two guys. This is not fair. And they break out. It's like the children break out into an argument over who's the greatest and going to be the greatest as Jesus is going to inaugurate his new kingdom. Remember, these followers of Jesus believe, these first followers of Jesus believe that Jesus is going to, via power over, make Rome great again. That's what they truly believe. That is the best, most contextual way. They are going to make, sorry, not make Rome great again. Let me back that up. Make Jerusalem great again. Through power over there, are going to push out the enemy of Rome and Jesus is going to reign and heaven is going to come fully to earth and everything's going to be like locked up. It's going to be perfect. They, this is what they believe. So they're like, hey, hey, we want to get in a position. Jesus is setting them up for actually the way in which the kingdom is going to take over, the way in which things are going to be made new and all of these, this understanding that these first good Jewish followers of Jesus have it doesn't quite look like how they thought it was going to look. We talk about this often. They get indignant. And so Jesus essentially says, okay, time out, guys. They're squabbling. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest, Jesus, when you bring your armies in and everything happens? Who's going to be the greatest? Time out. He puts the whole group in time out. He says, okay, we've talked about this before, but let me go over this one more time. And he says, look, again, if you're following along in the text, look how the rulers of the Gentiles and the leaders of the Gentiles, when they get into power, he uses this phrase, the way they lord it over the Gentiles. They lord it over people who have power. You know how they cause the people that are under them to serve them and to do whatever they want them to do. You know how that happens? They lord it over. They leverage people for their own good. You guys are sitting here saying you want a position of power. And I imagine the disciples at this moment are going, yeah, 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 we know that. That's why we want to be sitting at your right hand and left hand so people will do what we want them to do. So we'll have influence. I'm not saying their hearts were like all corrupt. They're just going, we want to like, we want to be in a position of power. Who's going to be the greatest? Who do you love the most? so that we can be seated with you and control this thing and lead this thing. That's why we want this power. We want to have that kind of power. We want people to go left if we say left and right if we say right. Jesus, I don't know if you're paying attention. It's like they're saying, this is why we hang out with you. They're, they're, 
People love the disciple, or most people love the disciples, and they love Jesus. It's just the religious establishment that is a bit allergic to what's happening. Everybody else, this is why we love hanging out with you. You're a big deal. By extension, we're a big deal. So when you come into your whole big dealness, we want to be able to have some power and control. Jesus says, wait, wait. Listen, you know how it is when, the, when, when the, the pagan rulers rule, how they lord it over everybody when they get into a position of power. They get entitled to the attention and to the position and the disciples are like, yeah. And then Jesus says a few words that if you're a home group leader, if you're a leader in your business, and your, if you have any place of leadership in your life, this is for everybody, but especially you, I want you to say this phrase with me, not so with you. Will you say that back to me? Not so with you. I wanted to start a series on how we love one another and care for one another and serve one another and, 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 and take care with that line. The way that we operate, I know not everyone here is a follower of Jesus, so just consider this a moment where you're kind of peering in on family business for a moment. How we are called to operate by Jesus, who we are apprenticing, following, growing and becoming disciples of, how we operate is not through power over, but power under. Not so with you. It's fine that you want to be great, he says. It's okay. There's point leadership is important. But guys, if the day comes that you actually have authority, that you have position they have the opportunity to rule over people. You know how the Gentiles do it? You know how everybody else does it? You know how the typical ruler and leader does it? Not so with you. And so today, I just want to place before you a question. And it's, like, am I really willing to do this? It's almost like a decision. In our church, in our home group, and my crew, with my people, this is not how it is supposed to work. He says, whoever wants to be great among you, who wants to be great? It's almost like you asked the disciples. They just got into this big squabble, shits them all down. Guys, you have not been listening to what this kingdom is actually gonna look like. See how everybody else does it? That's not how you do it. You know this, you know this. All right, so anybody again, let's revisit. Does anybody wanna be great? Raise your hands if you wanna be great. And his response, awesome. Must be, you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. You know, some people who get behind you, who humble themselves, people who you think not of what they accomplished, but what they did for you, these are the kinds of leaders that Jesus is after. The next verse, even me, the Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So Jesus is drilling it home now. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. For God so loved the world that he gave. Not for God was so into himself that he sent his Messiah so you would know how great he really was and worship. God is worthy of all our worship and praise because of what? In the church, our home groups, in our workplace, are we looking for ways to leverage our power and influence for others? Are we on the lookout for ways to serve people? Are we saying, I want to find every opportunity to lift others up? Paul comes along later in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 5, to all Christians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul's talking about the whole community. And he says, hey, everybody, submit yourselves to one another like, like Christ did. And in Philippians 2, right, we get this image of what this is like. We've spent a lot of time with this passage. Jesus forsook any privilege that he had, laid it all down, and the way he came to us was as a humble servant. Paul is like, yeah, do that. Submit to one another. Why wouldn't we say if we want to know what it is to like love like Jesus loved, we want to be a follower of Jesus, we really want to understand what God is like. The reason why we say, well, we need to just walk and do things like Jesus, we sometimes have this like distance, like, well, Jesus is like, you know, God, so it's cool and we'll aspire to that and thank God for grace, which means I really don't have to like turn up the volume and trying to do the things that he did because, you know, grace, to which we all know Paul warns us, don't keep on sinning so grace will increase. If you really love me, you'll begin to do what I do. And then he says things like, actually, you'll do even greater things, which I think means that we can do the things that he invited us to do. And one of those things Jesus embodies fully, which is actually the way you lead is to come underneath and to serve. And Paul uses this phrase, mutual submission which we're going to return to over and over. I heard a pastor talk about this, and he talked about how it just literally revolutionized his church. They like kept coming back to this phrase in every single arena of the community. How are you submitting to, one, to somebody else? Where are you laying down your life for somebody else? Where are you asking the question, I'm here to facilitate your success? I have the opportunity, like if you're here and you're a leader, you have the opportunity to do a whole lot for a lot of people. Many of us have more potential to put more wind in more sails of more people. Are you asking that question? Are you asking the question, what can I do to help? This sounds so basic, but begin to bring it into the lives of the people that you interact with. Maybe it's not something on an org chart or in a business or in a place of leadership but the people that you roll with, that your posture is this. How can you leverage me for you? Mutual submission. How can you leverage me for you? This is the challenging stuff that I've been working through, just to be really honest, over the last year or so. Because as I go through this, as somebody who has a bit of influence and power and position in a community like ours, I have to, I, I mean, the light shines bright and exposes a lot of places where, do, do I really 
Do I really leverage everything I have for building up others? Where are the places where I'm blind to that? Am I asking the question, where am I putting the wind in someone else's sails? This idea that I'm the anointed one, or maybe you're a leader, and you're like, well, I've worked myself into this position in this place, and sure, that's great. Someone's identified the fact that you could lead well in that particular space or whatever it may be. But, but in the church, right, we, we say this, we're a body. And so the idea that one part is more important than another part is something that Paul is literally doing away with. Example, my, my hand, this is pretty cool, right? Let's look at your hand, it's pretty cool. Now, if you were to sever that off and put it over there, it's just kind of gross. Like, that's super gross. Maybe some of you are like, actually, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Your hand was now over there. You have a problem. We're a, a, a body. <laughs> There's no part of the body that's non-essential. There's nothing uglier than a detached body part. Nothing. That's what happens so often in leadership and when we have places of influence in our lives. If it's detached from the whole and we don't see ourselves as a part of, and again, in Jesus' command underneath, we lose, we lose what we're invited to do, be about. The disciples begin to actually get this as we're beating on them, as they're sitting underneath the tree here. They're being told the ways that they've not gotten it. In Acts 6, they're helping and they're helping and they're helping and they actually have to be pulled away from like the day-to-day table setting of life to go and preach the gospel and to actually lead. It's like they finally get it. And I think part of the reason that these followers of Jesus do eventually get it is that this is drilled home and I want to end here is, is in the washing of feet in John 13. This famous story, there's this big entrance and the parade. Everybody is like, again, thrilled as the disciples enter into the city with Jesus. There's all this fanfare and the palms and they get to the house. And all of a sudden, I got to imagine they're a bit humiliated because they realize they didn't get a slave. They didn't grab somebody, some sort of servant who could come and wash their feet. And so they're, 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 they're stuck in this position where this would have been a normal thing is you have somebody who is a servant in the house to come and wash the feet of those who are traveling, especially someone like a rabbi and his crew. They didn't get anyone. And then Jesus puts the towel on. He takes the towel that's the servant's towel or like the host spouse. He takes it and puts it on. And I, I got to imagine it takes a bit of time to wash 12 feet. And just slowly, I just, I imagined that it was just silent. Who forgot to get someone to wash our feet after a day of travel? And Jesus steps up. He puts on the towel. He sets this example and he washes each one of their feet doing the job of a servant. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I, got, I feel like in this moment, they got it. Next time you think you're a big deal, go wash someone's feet. We talk about values a lot in our church. You invite the band up. The value of life is always measured by how much of it was given away. Right? You go to a funeral and it's never like, wow, that person just like, here's all the ways they hoarded their power and energy and influence. We know this and we sort of value this in our eulogy values, but we don't tend to value it in our day to day. It's not intuitive to like give your life away. It's not intuitive to give your leadership and your opportunities away. But if you don't, your impact will be no greater than just you. No greater than you. So I wanted to start with this phrase, not so with you, for this reason. Is because when we look at all of these commands, these one another's toward humility, I was surprised as I was going through the list to hear how many had to do with humility because loving one another and being united together, they like dominate the list. There's this humble 15% of humble yourself, humble yourself. John 13, 14 that we just read, washed one another's feet. Romans 12, 10, give preference to one another. I could have just like read that verse and walked away. Like give preference to one another. What does that mean for you? Please don't be asking the question right now, how am I doing with this sermon? Be asking yourself the questions, how am I doing with like a phrase like that? Give preference to one another. Or, 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 or serve one another. What about this one? Is be subject to one another. That is not okay language this day and age. Philippians 2, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard each other. This is said as a guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Yeah, I, I'm just going to regard everybody else as less than I me. Mean, this is what Jesus seemed to do. He came and, and served. And then 1 Peter 5, which we're going to dive much deeper into next week. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Not so with you. The way we think about power and the way that we think about leadership and the way that we interact with one another has to be different. Why? Because this is literally like how our Savior, our Lord and Savior came to us. If you're a Christian here, this is literally what you believe about the foundations of everything. For God so loved the world. God laid down his power, not considering that a privilege, so that we might know and see. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. There's something 
about a posture of saying, I am here for you. I'm here to build you up, to submit to one another. What happens if a bunch of people are submitting to one another? It's like, no, I'll get the door. 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 It's like a race to the bottom. You're like racing not to the top of the ladder. You're literally racing down the ladder. And Jesus simply says that's, that's the best possible way to live. Trust me. We're going to get into this a little more next week, but just, just trust me. It has a lot to do with your pride. It has a lot to do with your anxiety. It has so much to do with your ego. It will transform you and set you free. And a humble community clothing themselves in humility who are leading each other, not in power over, but in power under. A feet washing community will be united in a way, John 17 says, that the whole world will see that and go, huh? And follow him. When they begin to see that sort of humility and that sort of unity, they will say, huh? What? The peculiarity of a people, no matter how hypocritical and jacked up and broken and sinful, who are saying, how can I put wind in your sails? What does it mean to pour, pour myself out? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because this is what he does. And so when we come to communion, we welcome the ushers up, the servers up. When, when we come to something like the bread and the cup, I mean, this is like, this is the, the perfect picture. We right here are seeing the God of the universe emptying himself. Son of man, Jesus didn't come to be, to ser to be served, but to serve. So we see him taking, says, come and take the bread. Remember, this is my body broken for you. Take the cup drink it. And we know this is about the forgiveness of sins. This is about Jesus putting it all back together. But this also highlights how Jesus came to us. And so I want to encourage you as you're standing in line, as we close here in the next few minutes, just to be asking yourself the question, to be praying better yet. Good God, who who do I need to put some wind in their sails? Who do I need to leverage all that I have for their sake? Who am I being invited to serve? And maybe for you, this is actually highlighting some real brokenness in, in an obsession with like boundaries and proper boundaries. And by the way, I'm all for boundaries. But can we be honest for a minute? We get a little obsessed with, with like making, I, I, am I healthy? Am I healthy? Am I healthy? Uh, boundaries. I don't want to get too inconvenienced. I know that's like, it's a, like service and sacrifice is meant to hurt. It's meant to be hard and apparently it's like the best possible way to live. <laughs> I mentioned that because there might be something that God's doing in your heart as you come forward 
And believe me, Jesus, we know this. Jesus had boundaries and Jesus cared and it's important you care about your soul and where you're at. But I sense that for many of you, I've had this sense all week preparing for this, is that some actually need to hear that like the way of Jesus, especially when we first start walking this sort of sacrificial humility, not so with you kind of leadership, is you need to count the cost. It will hurt. It will be the best possible way to live. It will be the life of heaven. But at first, especially, it will hurt. And that's good. Jesus, we ask that your spirit would just fall upon us. I pray for people who are leaders in in the workplace. I pray for people who are leading our home group leaders right now. People who have like calls that you put on their heart. Lord, I pray for people who... um, you know, they know that there's something about the way they are in their friend group that like, they, they uh, people look to them. I pray for family units in the room, for parents. Even as they lead their kids, that they're asking questions about what, what, how does this apply to how I serve and bless and lay down my life for my children for their benefit. I pray that you fall, Lord, and just you would lead. I always feel stuck, God. You know this at this point in any sermon where I want to like have an individual like counseling session with every person and help ask them like nuanced specific questions as if I like could give a laundry list of how to best apply this. I trust, Lord, and we trust your spirit to guide in this moment that you know what's happening in people's hearts and you know what encouragement and what challenge needs to take place, Lord. And so as we come to the table, as we are reminded that we are forgiven and loved and free, as we are reminded of your great sacrifice, Lord, that you would stir in us as we close, as we sing, Lord, of of the unity of the family of Jesus, that you would stir in us You would prick us. You would give us insight, Lord, into the next step in our journey. Your spirit, Lord, challenges, it comforts, it confronts. Would you do your work? In your name we pray. Amen.